So this morning, we're in James chapter 5. At this point, we're coming to the end of James. Not only are we in the last chapter, but it could be argued that what James is doing here is ending with a final um, exhortation, coming up to a final benediction before he closes his letter. And so the closing remarks of his exhortation actually starts here in verse 7 and then continues on to the end of the chapter. And James has been telling his readers, the church that is scattered abroad, he's been telling them how to live with a life of true faith, right? How to live with true faithfulness, true allegiance to Christ our King. We are to know what it is to live a life of true faith. And going all the way back to the beginning, remember I said that this title, this Christ, is not the last name of Jesus. It's actually a political and messianic title. Christ is the King. And so James is concerned with how are you living according to the commands and the desires of our king? One of the things that we have to remember too is that we don't honor and live for a dead king or a king that is far off that we will never meet. Our king is returning, and he's returning in full glory and power, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And so we are called to live our lives of allegiance with that coming in mind, with that return of our Lord in mind. And we are called to serve him and obey him and love him with an eternal focus. And so James, after saying everything that he's been saying, now ends with this idea of patience and endurance in the Christian life. You know, it's interesting that uh, this Sunday would be on patience and endurance. Um, Of all weekends, this would have been, or I should say even of all Sunday mornings, this would have been one that would have tried my patience. All right, I was, it was just me this weekend with Kaj. Michelle uh, is off visiting her sister in college, and so it's just, uh, and she took Ellie with her, so it was just a, kind of a guy's weekend. So, you know, some boy movies and junk food, and then a lot of cleaning before Michelle gets back. But, um, but this morning I, I woke up and I wanted to get myself prepared for, you know, Sunday service. Then I actually had forgotten to give Michelle the bulletin before she left on Friday. So I had to go in this morning and do that, get these things ready, get the songs ready, because obviously Michelle's not here this weekend. But what was amazing is, and then with all that, you know, bringing my son along with me everywhere I go, can't leave him in the car, right? I gotta, you know, can't leave him at home, definitely. So I'm taking him, packing him everywhere I go. He's got to come with me. It usually makes me go a little bit slower, too. But of all, you know, it's just amazing, though, in, in you know, God's, um, in God's sanctifying work and in his grace, I didn't really feel very pressed this morning. 
I felt the ability to kind of just not go with the flow. There's a lot to do, but to be patient. When things came up that were unexpected, just be patient. And I really think that that was only because I had this scripture on my mind and on my heart um, this week and especially this morning. So when you get to the office and the computers aren't warmed up or ready to go, and but you know what? Patience. We are called to live patient and resolute lives for Christ. And we're called to do this in light of the fact that his return is imminent. We're called to do this in light of the fact that his return is happening and it's drawing near. Let's look at our passage this morning in James 5, 7 through 12. James says, So be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's return. Think of how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the ground and is patient for it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient and strengthen your hearts, for the Lord's return is near. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge stands before the gates. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name. Think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. You have heard Job's, of Job's endurance and have seen the Lord's purpose, that the Lord is full in, of compassion and mercy. And above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into judgment. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would use me, God, to um, preach well, that I would know nothing among um, my brothers and sisters here except for Christ crucified, Lord. And the goal is for us all together to be hearing the word so that we can be doing the word, Lord, as your children. I pray, God, that you would sanctify us in this time together and teach us more of what it means to be patient and endure. And how does our yes being yes coincide with that idea, Lord? You, you reveal that this morning. And I pray, Lord, that for those who uh, do not know Christ, especially if any are in this church, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, reveal yourself to them. We thank you, Lord, that you are patient and long-suffering with us. Lord, grant that we would become patient and endure as well. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our um, first few verses, 7 through 9, it says in your handout, it says, Believers are to remain patient and resolute until the Lord returns and remedies all things. So I wanted to talk about two ways that we are to be patient. The, the first one is we are to be patient in our sanctification. You know, James said just earlier on that we all stumble, right? We all fall in many ways. And the reason why I'm saying being patient in our sanctification is so important is because I think what tends to happen sometimes is we, we, we are very immediate people. We, we want the sanctification in our lives 
to be immediate, and we forget that God is a crockpot God in a lot of ways. And, you know, when you were saved, there's probably certain things that, you know, you just, that fell away right away. You weren't interested anymore, and you're able to walk away from them and really never look back. And then there are other things that have kind of persisted over time, and it's been this lifelong struggle, right? And, and then there have been some things that you've had victory over as you've been sanctified in Christ. It, it's a journey. It's a process. And the reason why I say we need to be patient in that process isn't to um, alleviate the burden of actually being sanctified. It's not that we can just sit back and be lazy in our sanctification, or that we can just say, oh, well, it's sin, it'll take care of itself over time, I don't need to worry about it. But the reason I'm saying being patient in our sanctification is because if we aren't, what'll tend to happen is as soon as we fall or stumble, we'll just, I guess that's it. I mean, how many times have we, have we fallen in sin, and because we weren't patient in our sanctification, what ended up happening really is we just kind of spiraled out of control. We were so overwhelmed by that sin that instead of bringing it to God, instead of recognizing his mercy and his grace, we ended up just kind of falling apart. And when we fall apart in that way, we, yeah, we, we just we, we spiral out of control and we end up just kind of committing that sin more and leading ourselves into other sins. And We need to be patient in our sanctification, thinking of how often we fail in our allegiance to Christ, what we really need to be focusing on is that sanctification, our sanctification is a process. And so we need to be patient, but we also need to be resolute. We need to be patient, but we also need to endure with ourselves and with others. So when we fall in sin, we don't hide it, we don't excuse it. We go to the Lord, we're honest with it. And we're resolute, we're truly repentant, saying, and and I'm going, I want to turn from this, God. I don't want to go back to my vomit anymore. But if you're impatient and you think it's just going to be this immediate sort of, you know, I'm getting over things and I'm never going to have to deal with it again, then... You know, you're going to be surprised when, when those sins kind of creep back up. And you're not going to be ready for them because you haven't been practicing this patience and sanctification. Not only with ourselves, but also with others. Recognizing that the Lord is doing the same work in them. How often are we to forgive our brothers in Christ, our sisters in Christ? What did Jesus say? Right, 70 times 7. This idea that you keep forgiving. Why? Because we need to recognize that the same way that the Lord is patient with us, we are to be patient with others. In the same way that we've been forgiven, we also forgive others. And this is very important for what James has just spent the last four chapters talking about. Because if you look at the last four chapters, I think you can you know, whether it's your life or the life of somebody else, see how many times that you've stumbled and fallen. How many times has your tongue been like a piercing sword? How many times have you lacked joy in trials? How many times have you just given in to that temptation? 
We look over the, the, the book of James and we see, of course, that we've stumbled in many ways. We and others, as, we've, as we are in this sanctification process, waiting until the Lord returns and remedies all things, we need to be patient, we need to be enduring with each other as well. Does that make sense? So we need to be patient in our sanctification, but we also need to be patient in our suffering. See, this church was suffering because of persecution. Not statewide persecution yet, but persecution from their own brethren, from their own covenant community. We cannot forget that this church is scattered because of the martyring of Stephen. They've scattered. And, and I, sometimes I wonder if we don't think about that. You know, take, take that in for a second. You know, this isn't just like, you know, your government persecuting you. That's bad, and that comes a little bit later here. But that, that's, that probably pales in comparison to the fact that your own brethren are persecuting you. These were the people that you identified with. This was your family. And they've forsaken their Lord. And now they're persecuting you and hating you because you've decided to follow your rightful king. And so there needs to be patience in this suffering as well. And then they're also suffering because of sin that still continues in the church. This is why James needs to confront so many things here. Do not practice partiality. Where's that taking place? In the church. Workers, pay your laborers. Where's that taking place? In the church. So we are called to endure and be patient in this suffering. And, and even though we're patient with one another, sin in the church still needs to be corrected. It still needs to be dealt with. You can't just... A, a healthy church even though we're patient with each other, it's not just going to ignore sin and sweep it under the rug and think, you know, we'll, we don't need to worry about that. This is why James brings this up. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's return. He says, think of how a farmer waits for the precious fruit of the ground and is patient for it until it receives the early and later rains. See, the Lord's return is, is near. The judge, as James says, ju the judge stands before the gates. The work of the Lord is like these seasonal rains. See, the Lord doesn't work on our timing. God doesn't work on our clock. Just like, just like the rains don't work on the clock of the farmer. The farmer is to be patient. The farmer is to endure. The farmer is to be ready, prepared for when the rains come. And like a, the farmer, we know that the Lord produces the good fruit of our lives. So like the farmer, we too, we need to be prepared for the rains to come. In the same way, we must be ready for the Lord to return at any moment. We live with this eternal focus in mind. 
We take each day. You know, there's, you know that, the saying that carpe diem, right? Seize the day. And you got a lot of people with this, you know, worldly kind of wisdom. They treat each day as if it's its last. No, treat each day as if the Lord is returning. Treat each day as if the Lord is at the gates. Treat each day like a farmer preparing patiently for the rain and for the crops to be produced. In the same way, you prepare yourself each day for the fruit that the Lord is going to produce in your life and the things that he has for you in this day. And you work unto the Lord knowing that it could be your last day to do so. And then what happens is you face the judge and you face eternity. This idea of our Lord standing at the gates, and let me just, this idea that the Lord standing at the gates is he sees everything we do. So he does not want us, as verse 9 says, he does not want us grumbling or quarreling or taking advantage of one another. Instead, we are called, as James says, to judge rightly in the body of Christ according to the word of God. We don't elevate people and we don't show partiality. We're not to create heavy burdens that people cannot live up to. We're not called to invent sins and then add those to the Bible. Basically, we're not called to become Pharisees. He does not want us grumbling. He does not want us quarreling. And it, and it actually made me think of Proverbs 19.11. It says, Insight makes one patient, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. In other words, it is a good sign of wisdom and dependence on the Lord to have patience when somebody wrongs you. Right? Going back to this idea of patience in the body of Christ. It's a good idea to have patience with people when they fall, when they stumble, when they sin against you. This is wisdom, actually. And the reason why we can also know it's wisdom is because in the same way, the Lord is patient and long-suffering with us. And even at times, think about this. Think about this in any relationship you have. But at times, isn't the wise thing to be able to simply move past something without having to always need to correct or rebuke? Now, why, why would I say this? Because it seems like I'm almost holding to you. I said, well, we have to deal with sin in the church. We can't just ignore it. But then here I bring up Proverbs 19.11, and I say, it's good. It's to our glory, actually, to be able to overlook an offense. How do we hold these two things? I think we do that by remembering the Bible's uh, Warnings about judgment. The Bible doesn't say just don't judge. You have to judge. You make judgments all the time. You have to make judgments with people all the time. Are they a safe person? Are they a nice person? Is this a good relationship? Is this a healthy person? But we have to remember that the Bible's warning about judgments is that we will be judged as well but we will be judged by a much higher standard. 
And if we cannot show mercy, then we will not receive mercy. James says that too. If we cannot be patient with each other, then we all stand condemned. John Calvin said it this way, God will be the common judge of all. What then will be the case but that everyone who seeks to bring judgment on others must allow the same judgment against himself? And thus all will be given up to the same ruin. Let no one then ask for vengeance on others except he wishes to bring it on his own head. See, we act with patience toward one another because we have received patience. Amen? We act and are able to show mercy and forgiveness to one another because we have received mercy, because we have been forgiven. So James is speaking to a specific context here, and so is this, this proverb. It's not this idea of just ignoring sin. It's not the idea of trying to just you know stuff down the pain deep inside. But it's the ability of growing in our sanctification in patience and in patience with one another, recognizing that, yes, you are going to sin against me. Yes, I am going to sin against you. But does my life show a love for you? Does your life show a love for me? And am I able at times to simply look past a wrong that you have committed against me? Am I able to say, you know, maybe he didn't really mean it that way. Or am I so judgmental and so impatient with somebody else's sanctification that I forget that I too am a work in progress? So we are called to be patient in this life, whether it's through our suffering, whether it's through our sanctification. But then, we also get an example of this. Right, he says, James says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name. Think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance, and you have seen the Lord's purpose, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, by examples here, James is really talking about this idea of mentors, Let the faithful men and women of the Bible and even the saints, the faithful saints of the past, train you in how to think and live and act and worship. We are to remember that we are part of a full body of Christ here that spans thousands of years in the past. The Bible didn't just plop down in the last few years here. The church didn't just begin in the last few years in the 21st century. As John Piper would say, the friends you need are buried in the past. What this means is it's important to be looking at the wisdom and faithfulness that has stood the test of time. Right? The wisdom and faithfulness that has led to great things within the body of Christ. That we look back on even today and say, wow, what boldness, what courage, what wisdom, what patience, what love. What faithfulness. 
And even James, he says this. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets. Look at the prophets. The life of a prophet was not easy. The call of a prophet was usually come and die. I mean, this is in the wake, okay, of just a few years of the church being persecuted and people being put to death. Right now, Paul himself is on a rampage. The call is to come and die. Suffering, patience. But James says, you're not the only ones and you're certainly not the first ones. Look at the example of the prophets. Those faithful men in the past who stood strong for the Lord even when the whole nation was against them. We can take great comfort and wisdom from the saints who have lived and endured and suffered before us. Even in our day today, even in the trials that we are going through, whether it's in our family, in our relationships, in the church, or whether it's just a recognizing of the trials and the chaos that's kind of happening in the world around us, we can take comfort in knowing that this isn't the first time something like this has happened. This isn't the first time the church has been at odds with the culture. We can look at the prophets and the saints and see imperfect examples, but faithful and courageous examples. Faithful and courageous lives lived for Christ. And it reminds me of Ecclesiastes 3. On 3, it says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak up. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. See, patient, patient endurance shows us that there is a time to overlook an offense and a time to confront And the prophets give us good examples of this. James even uses the patience of Job as his example. But we know the story of Job. Job loses everything. His land, his livestock, his home, even his children. He is a faithful man of God. Known throughout the land as being faithful. The Lord himself even calls Job blameless. God himself recognizes that Job has lived a faithful life to him. Job would even make sacrifices for his children just in case they had sinned and not made sacrifices. This was the kind of faithful, loving man that Job was. And then he loses Everything. He loses everything. 
and then, on top of that, suffers physical pain, boils, sickness. And his wife comes and says, what are you doing? Curse God and die. And Job says, no. Can I accept what is good from God and not what is evil? Now, throughout the book of Job, his friends pay him a visit. They start to speak. And they have this back and forth. And then Job ends up talking to God. And Job does groan. He does murmur to himself. He doesn't display perfect patience in this book. But he always, always surrenders himself to the Lord. He never curses God and dies. He is constantly seeking the Lord. And so it is imperfect patience, but is a good example nonetheless. And that's why James brings that up. That's why he says, think of how we regard the ble- as blessed those who have endured. You look at the life of Job. You look at the life of a prophet. You look at the life of a saint of the past, and you say, wow, how they have endured the hardships that were before them with such patience and faithfulness. How was it George Mueller was able to have such patience and pray each and every day for the daily bread in order to feed the kids of the orphanage, in order to keep this ministry afloat? How was it that Isaiah and Elijah were able to have such patience in such a wicked nation that has turned from God? How was Job able to keep such endurance and patience even though he had lived a faithful life and yet had lost everything? It's because of what James says at the end here. You have seen the Lord's purpose, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We actually have an advantage that the prophets did not have. We actually have an advantage that Job did not have. Did Job get to see the Lord's purpose from the beginning? No. In fact, you could argue that Job never gets to see it. He didn't get to see the divine counsel at the beginning. He never got a promise from God that he would have more children to him at the end. He never got an answer from God that says, hey, your kids that that are dead, don't worry, they're taken care of, I got them. He doesn't get this kind of comfort, he doesn't get this kind of insight, but yet... He just suffers with this patience and with very little knowledge of what the Lord is doing. Now imagine that in the, for the, in the day of these readers, right? The church has begun. It's kind of exploded on the scene. Our Lord has ascended into heaven and he says he will return. And yet, what is happening? Persecution and death and sin within the body of Christ. Does the Lord know what he's doing? And see, we, we go through the same thing today. 
as we go through the trials of life, as we go through the chaos of this world, it can be hard to endure, it can be hard to be patient, because sometimes we just ask, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Where are you? Why has this come upon us? And for some of us, this suffering does include the losing of family and friends and people who are close to us. Because we have attempted and tried as Job and as the prophets to remain faithful to the word of God, to remain patient in suffering. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, we have a benefit. We have a benefit of being able to have a passage like this in front of us. We know the purpose of God. We have seen his compassion and his mercy on display. We get to look back at history and we get to see the sovereignty and the providence of God working in the midst of others who are going through chaos and have no idea what God is doing. We get to look back and say, now we see. We get to look back 500 years and see how God was restoring his church again. But they didn't know it at the time. It was chaos. And people lost their lives. Well, brothers and sisters, it's no different for us. It seems chaotic right now, but we have the promise, the Lord's purpose. You can be patient. You can endure because the Lord's purpose still stands. He is full of compassion and mercy. His kingdom will come and his will will be done. We can trust that even in the suffering and chaos of our lives, that God is full of compassion and mercy. So when you suffer and when you endure with patience, you are counted among the saints of the past. You, when you endure, when you speak boldly for the gospel, you are counted among the prophets of the past. Now, this takes us to our last verse this morning. It says, And above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into judgment. Now, there's some difficulty with this verse here because depending on how your Bible is laid out, this verse might actually start a new paragraph. And certain commentaries even say, well, it's meant to be with the next grouping of verses. And some say, well, it's meant to be as with this grouping of verses that we're talking about this morning. And some say it's supposed to just kind of be a standalone. I think it tends to be with what we're talking about because of its ending with its focus on not falling into judgment. We've just been talking about this kind of patience, endurance, knowing that the judge is standing at the gate, right? This judgment is coming. And that's what, so that's why our title for, for this section is let the witness of your life be stronger than an oath. Why? Because the judgment of the Lord is coming. Our king stands at the gate. 
What we need to do then is we need to stop making empty promises to God and stop making empty promises to the people around us. Can I get in your kitchen a little bit here? That's kind of been like a saying in our church now for a few years. Like when we have to confront, right, we have to get in each other's kitchen. It's getting a little bit uncomfortable. Please know that as I say this, I'm speaking to myself first. Because this is something in the sermon that I've had to wrestle with this week. Either do what you say you're going to do, or be honest and tell God and others that you won't. Either do what you say you're going to do, or just be honest about the fact that you won't do it. Stop saying, I'm going to do this for God and that for God once I get this stuff in my life situated. Stop saying, I promise God that if you get me out of this, I will serve you. And by all means, please, if this is you, and you have these kind of sayings, these worldly sayings that come up as believers, we need to stop saying things like, well, I swear on my mother that I will do this. Stop that. It is our life that bears witness against us. When we say that we will do things or that we won't do things and then we go back and do them or we refrain from doing them, we can make all the promises we want, but our life bears witness against us. My actions are a stronger testimony than my empty promises. A church father said it this way, Now the person who has heard the blessings of God and who has prepared himself as Christ has commanded will never claim any need to do anything of the kind, for he is respected and honored by all. What is needed beyond a simple yes or no? An oath adds nothing to these, for no one has to be told that evil is the source of both excess and, def- and its deficient opposite. An oath is a form of excess. In other words, if you are known for your honesty, an oath adds nothing but empty excess to what you're saying. If you're already an honest person and your yes is yes and your no is no, then that's sufficient, is it not? Yes, I will do it. And guess what? We can trust that he will do it because he's, he's a man of his word. If you are not known for your honesty, then your oath means nothing anyway, because your life bears witness against it. So it doesn't matter if you come and say to me, hey, I swear on my mother, I will not do that again. It means nothing. How many times have we promised to stop drinking and drugging How many times have we promised to stop lusting and fornicating? How many times have we promised either God or ourselves that we would get our families in order or our finances in order? How many times have we made promises to our kids that we would start taking care of them and being the godly father or mother that God desires? 
How many times have we promised God that we would get in the Word more and start doing our daily devotions in the morning? How many times have we promised God that we would start serving Him in the church more? How many times have we promised others, yeah, I'll be at church, yeah, I'll be at Bible study? It's time that we stop making empty promises and start doing according to what we say we're going to do. Because the judge is at the gate. Not only does he see our empty promises, but we don't even have time to make empty promises. The judge is at the gate. And even if he doesn't return in our lifetime, do not forget, brothers and sisters, our life is but a puff of smoke. We are but of yesterday. So we can talk about being patient and enduring suffering for the Lord all day long. But is your life a testimony? Is your life a testimony in the sense that you're actually doing it? Are you really putting patience and long-suffering with people into practice? Is your life a testimony to the fact that you will suffer for the Lord? And the reason I, I, I mean, we, we bring this up, it's, it's kind of ironic to me that we are going through what we're going through in our country right now because we have so many people that have thought for so long that how important church is and how important the Lord is. Lord, I'll suffer for you. And yet, in the wake of small persecution, a lot of them aren't even going to church. Because they were told not to. Being patient and enduring suffering. Remember that the one who knows what to do but fails to do it, James says, it is sin for him. So we need to stop making empty promises to God and to others around us and start actually living the life that God has called us to. Amen? And if you need accountability, great, we all do. Find someone in the church that's going to hold you accountable. And if you don't know how to find one, then come talk to me or Ralph or John or Pastor Keith, and we will guide you to somebody. But it is time for us to start living the godly life without excuse from this day forward. And that is the only way that we can live this life of patience and endurance that James is calling us to now. It's the only way these prophets were able to live a life of patience and endurance in the past and in the saints of the past. Why? Because they were committed. They were resolute. Our yes would be our yes. Our no would be our no. I said I would serve you, Lord. I said that I would honor you. The beautiful end of all this, though, because I don't want to end with that. The beautiful end of all of this, though, is that we get to live with this hope that James has brought up multiple times in this passage. The Lord is returning. He did not leave us as orphans. That's what John 14 tells us. I, did, I, I will not leave you as orphans. 
You will see me again. Have patience and endurance with the motivation that you know that you will see the Lord again, that he has not forsaken his anointed. He has not left you to suffer alone. He has not left you to try to white-knuckle patience and obedience in your life. He is there with you. He is working in you. And that's why I've been quoting James a lot all throughout the book, you know, this morning. But the other one that comes to mind is when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You need help with patience and enduring in your life, then you draw near to the Lord. You open his word. You see what his promises are, what he has to say. You pray to him. You talk to him. You sing to him. And you see how the Lord will work in the patience in your life, in the enduring, resolute serving of our king that he has called you to. And we as the church are called to do it together. I have to get called out on the lack of patience in my life. I'm so thankful that I do have a wife who is willing to just tell me, you know, that was rude, the way you said that. And I'm thankful that she's patient with me when I argue against that and say, no, it's not. I'm just being straightforward. And then, this is Wednesday, by the way, and then halfway through Bible study, I'm sitting there going, yeah, no, it was was rude. We as the church, we need that accountability in our lives in order to be resolute, in order to endure. You're not called to do it alone. You're called to do it with the body of Christ, amen? And so on that note, as we take communion this morning, let us do it with hope. Let us do it with celebration because we do. We we have a king that is alive and we have a king that is returning. He is coming for his people. And you are promised that you will see him, that you will not be left as orphans. So as we come to the table this morning, we remember the cross, we remember the, the purchasing of our, of our lives because of his life that he sacrificed. And then we celebrate. We celebrate the position that we have in the kingdom. We celebrate the hope that is within us until it comes, amen? Okay, so I'm gonna have um, Ed... And Jimmy, if you could come up for um, leading communion. And again, you just take the cup. We got new ones. We had purple before. Now we have green. Let me pray for us as as they come up. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray that for each and every one of us that we would grow in patience and endurance. You have called us to such a wonderful life, even though that life is, can be filled with, with persecution and suffering and just, Lord, just a whole bunch of trials that come up, God. It is still a wonderful life because we have hope. It is a wonderful life because you have promised that you would work in us and sanctify us, Lord. And God, I do pray that if we say that we are going to be people of patience and endurance then, Lord, that we would be true to our promises to you, that our yes would be our yes and our no would be a no. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the cross, your salvation that you bought with your blood. Lord, that you have purchased our salvation, that we can stand before the Lord 
pure and blameless because of what you have done. It is not our own righteousness that saves us, Lord, it is only yours. And it is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that and celebrate it this morning together as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.